Have a seat, everybody. We are glad that you are here, wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith. We are glad that you are here. We regularly have between 10 and 20% people investigating the Christian faith. So if that uh, is you, we welcome you and you are not alone. We understand how you feel. I was the same way when I was in law school and we respect your journey. Uh, This morning's sermon will be a little more focused on those of us who call ourselves Christians and those of you who are investigating the faith. We're glad that you are here. We ask you to listen in because we are talking about one of the more countercultural parts of Christianity, something that you would really have to consider yourself in the process of your own journey. So I think it will be very helpful for you in any event. But if you have a Bible, you can turn to the fifth chapter of Matthew. If you have a bulletin, and most of you do, you can turn to the back panel because we will be reflecting upon the scriptures that are printed out there. And to help us with the reading of God's word, Gwen. Matthew 5, 2 to 5. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Several decades ago, the world as we know it changed through one of those meetings that has now become legendary. A brash young man walked into the office of a senior VP of one of North America's largest, actually um, uh, the world's largest companies, and sat down and had an interview. He was asking the VP of that company to join him in his startup. The VP of Pepsi was John Scully. The brash young man was Steve Jobs. And most of you who are in any way conversant with the literature of business and entrepreneurship know the line... I am about to quote. Steve Jobs looked him in the eye and said, do you want to spend the rest of your life trying to sell sugar water, or do you want to come with me and change the world? (laughs) Scully went, of course, joined Apple. The world as we know it changed. Steve Jobs was a visionary leader, a driven man, an ambitious man, and we love this story. Our culture loves that story, that story of vision ambition, drive, glory, and transformation. But ambition is something that many Christians struggle with, precisely because some of the verses we are looking at and reflecting upon today. Should I aggressively pursue promotion and advancement in my career? Is that wrong from a gospel perspective? I had a very sharp young woman in finance. She met with me just a a few months ago and asked exactly these kinds of questions. She was in a group in her larger finance company known for its culture of throwing people under the bus for personal advancement. It was one of those groups that, that 
qualified, sharp, advanced people go to and then get picked off by select other groups. It's the group for people who want to be recruited, and it's the group that gets itself recruited at the expense of others. What should I do, she asked. Should I pursue promotion? Is it okay to be ambitious? Because to be ambitious here is to sharpen your elbows and throw others under the bus. To which Jesus, if he were here, and in a very real way he is here, he would say this, I think. It depends. Now let us look more closely at why I think Jesus would say, it depends. We're looking here at Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and here, our third sermon into the series, we're looking at the particular statement, the end here, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It comes after blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. And as we will see, they build on one another. But we're looking particularly at this idea of meekness. Now in a world where we are always told to assert ourselves, speak up for ourselves, defend ourselves, there may be no attribute, no teaching of Jesus that is more countercultural to the world we presently inhabit or the culture we inhabit. This teaching slaps us right in the face. This is one of the most difficult of any of the teachings of Jesus. It's difficult to understand, even more difficult to apply. Today we're going to just look at three things. Uh, The promise that Jesus gives, the problem with the promise, and the power to actually implement the command. The promise, the problem, and the power. Firstly, the promise. Uh, Jesus has two phrases here, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'm going to deal with those two, but backwards, because the meek part is the sticky one, and we're going to spend the most time. Let's first deal with this promise, they shall inherit the earth. Jesus here says clearly that the people who are meek, as he's describing, will inherit the earth. Thoughtful readers and probably original hearers of this in Matthew's gospel are Jewish, they are pretty sure Jesus is riffing off Psalm 37, where a promise is made to the Israelites. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more, says verse 10. Though you look carefully at his, pl- at his place, the wicked will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. The land in this promise is Israel. But Jesus is taking the promise given to Israel hundreds thousands of years earlier, and expanding and intensifying it. They shall inherit these meek, the whole earth. Scholars are mostly in agreement that Jesus is not primarily talking about what's going to happen in your lifetime. Jesus is saying a future day is coming. A day when he comes back is coming. When Jesus returns, he says, I will make all things new. I will make the heavens new. I will make the earth new. I will make you new. Everything will be refined. Everything will be purified. There will be no more mourning or brokenness. It will be impeccably beautiful, unimaginably pure, unbelievably fresh, unchangeably innocent. All the evil and brokenness will be no more. And when that day comes, the people who are poor in spirit, who realize their need for grace and have come to me in faith, these people who act in meekness as a result, they will inherit this whole new cosmos. What a promise. But now it's for the meek. And who are the meek? 
We've already said in the past few weeks that this word blessed does not refer to a subjective feeling of happiness or even of gratitude, but it is an objective truth about your status. The type of people who are poor in spirit and who mourn and who are meek are the type of people who are made that way by the Holy Spirit. These are spiritual gifts. These are spiritual fruits, as Lyndon reminded us last week. He said, those people who mourn, not all of them get comforted by God. This isn't human grief over tragedy, although it includes that. It's more. It's a type of mourning the gospel gives you, a mourning over your sin and over the brokenness of the world. It's a mourning deeply influenced by that first characteristic, being poor in spirit, thinking you're not much before God. These attributes all flow together, as Lyndon pointed out. Someone who is poor in spirit, as Jesus defines it, is humble before God, sees himself as needing God's grace, as mourning over the fact that they fail God's standards of love and beauty and purity, that sense of inadequacy and unworthiness to deserve God, that poverty of spirit flows out into this idea of meekness. Because meekness is an outflow of poverty of spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, it is a true view of yourself that expresses itself in attitude and conduct to others. Meekness, as it were, is the outward face of poverty of spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones continues, It's my attitude to myself, and it is an expression of that in my relationship to others. Meekness is seeing yourself as deserving nothing before God but grace. Therefore, when you face others, you don't feel entitled to much. You have a humble and gentle attitude toward others where you deliberately put them first and are willing to put yourself second. It has a proactive element and a responsive element. Proactively, you don't push and claw and scramble to get to the top. You work your work. You live your life. But you see others as worth at least as much or more honor than you yourself. Lloyd-Jones again. A man who is meek is amazed that God and people think as well of them as they do and treat me as well as they do. Hmm. Meekness in relationships translates to kindness and patience toward others. It means putting your interests aside and trying to enter into the world and the needs of others and serve them. You put yourself in their shoes. You listen more. You talk less. You are gentler in your relationships. With respect to status, it means willing to take a lonely position at an event. Jesus talked about seats at a banquet in Luke 14. When you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by the host. But when you are invited, go sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all. You see what Jesus is saying. Be meek. Don't consider yourself as being entitled to much. In relationships, gentleness, kindness, in status, being willing to take a lower position at work. Hmm. It does something to your ambition. To be meek is to change your ambition. Meek people see promotions as a gift of grace, not primarily as something they are entitled to. They may fairly ask for it, they may see themselves as qualified for it. They may feel called by God to get promoted, but still, they check their heart. Is this for my glory or God's? 
They don't toot their own horn. They don't overly magnify their own accomplishments. Though if truth demands it, they will tell what they actually did. They don't think they deserve it. Meek people don't generally get filled with resentment when others get a promotion that they do not. Unless there's some clear injustice at play, and there often is. If there's racism or sexism or some other kind of toxic injustice that stops you and gives it to another, meekness doesn't say be quiet. Meekness says step into that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But proactively, that is meekness. It's a holding back of one's own self-interest, self-promotion, self-assertion inclinations and trying to serve others. It has a proactive element but also a responsive element. Meek people endure negative feedback without getting defensive, without blame-shifting, without self-justifying. They handle being criticized, seeing it as an opportunity from God to maybe reveal a blind spot and get better. They don't always push back. They endure it. They think about it. They're thankful for it, even if a lot of it is misjudged or misguided, because it affords them an opportunity to analyze themselves, to remember who they are and who they are not, to remember that it is all by the grace of God that they have become who they are, to see their sin and weakness and progress. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. You've got to understand the Apostle Paul was a very aggressive man by inclination and nature. Very ambitious man. He talks about his life before he had become a Christian and met Jesus. He says, I was advancing in Judaism, Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, beyond many of my own age, among my own people. Do you hear that competitiveness? He noticed who was around him. I'm advancing beyond them. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This is Paul in his natural element. But that same Paul, when he became a Christian, did not lose his personality. But look how he responds responds to negative feedback. In 1 Corinthians 4, dealing with a church that has slandered him and mocked him and demeaned him, he says this, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 10 to 13. We are fools for Christ's sake. You are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong, willing to admit his weakness. There might be some irony there. <laughs> you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. These are all true. And we labor working with our own hands. It sounds like he should be respected for that. Now listen. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. Meekness lets you be considered the scum of the world. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty aggressive. This is hard. Paul takes criticism in every persecution with meekness. Now, there's probably questions pouring in over the Q&A phone already. Uh, And so uh, just to head off about uh, two dozen of them, I'm going to say two things. One, three things. Weakness does not mean being a wallflower. When Jesus asks us to be meek, he's essentially saying, don't be self-seeking for your own glory. He's not asking us, though, to stop loving people, and he's not asking us to stop loving ourselves properly understood. To love yourself is to love the growth of character and moral goodness in you. 
To love others is to love that same thing in them. It's not about advancing in status. It's about advancing in your soul. And we are to love others as we love ourselves, rightly understood. Seeing this idea of love helps clarify what meekness means. If your organization refuses to promote you because you're a woman or a person of color, they are being unjust. They are perpetuating unjust, wrong, toxic, illegal cultures that are destructive not only of you, but of them. And the law of love, which says love your neighbor as yourself, is not a wallflower love, but a love that intervenes when brokenness and addiction and toxicity exists. I was speaking with one of our lay leaders. He was quite frustrated. He was in a toxic work culture in his firm. There were some people who were clearly the favorites of the higher-ups. Politics ruled. He was passed over for promotion a couple of times in favor of other favorites. And he was just getting tired of it. He was just about to leave. I said, leave if you want, but speak up at all costs. You owe it to them. That culture is toxic. It's going to kill that company. How's morale in your group? He says it's terrible. Everybody knows. Everybody's talking about it. The law of love then says, this is how you be meek. For their sake you go, even if it possibly jeopardizes any chance of a promotion. Meekness is not being a wallflower. The same Paul who wrote these words of enduring and entreating appealed to Caesar when his civil rights as a Roman citizen, we're being trampled. You see, if you have a friend who keeps breaking boundaries with you, the law of love says you need to confront them for their sake, not just yours. If you have someone who's addicted to blame shifting and they keep blaming you, check your motives first. Are are you going to go to them just because it's about you wanting your reputation fixed? I have to do that all the time. That's my idol. But after you've checked your motives, you go to them and you say, I see a dark thing in you. And I think you need to be free of it. Love moves into places of addiction and helps bring freedom. Meekness is love in action. And love is not a wallflower. Secondly, love's not only not a wallflower, love, meekness does not mean weakness. Now, it sounds like they're the same thing, but they're slightly different. I submit to you, That it takes incredible courage and strength not to advance your own interests, not to always seek your own status and limelight at the expense of others. I was at uh, I was at the law firm, and I knew I was called into Christian ministry, and so I went to the senior partner of the law firm, and I thought, you know what, I'm I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a good witness. For Jesus, I'm going to tell them six months before I leave that I'm going to leave the law firm. I'm going to give them plenty of time to plan. This, this is good. This is what I should do. And he looked at me, and he kind of leaned back, and he challenged me. He liked me. He was a little bit fooled by, by my personality. He didn't know how bad I was as a lawyer. But then he said, I, we would really like you to stay. You sure you want to do this? And I said, I, I really feel called. I, I, I need to do this. He says, you sure you want to do this now? I said, well, I, I wanted to give you some, some, some extra notice and I thought that was the right thing to do. He said, you do realize we're having a meeting right now with all the associates, including you and the senior partners. Yes, I do. That's what I want to tell you now. He says, you do realize there's a 50% raise about to be announced to all of you associates, and you just disqualified yourself for it. You want to take it back? Boy, did I want to take it back. That's a lot of money I'm leaving on the table. I could have given him three weeks or four weeks' notice, yeah? 
I didn't take it back. And all week, I murmured and I resented and I groused. Almost a month it took me to get over this because I wanted that money. And I realized, you know what? It actually costs sometimes to put the interest of others ahead of you. 50% of my salary out the window. Meekness does look like weakness, but it was harder to control my resentment and my anger and my greed than I thought it was. It took real strength. It took others to help me to get over the, the mistake I thought I'd made and to realize, no, 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 God didn't make a mistake. He was testing to show you what true strength is. True strength isn't always asserting your rights. It's hard to give them up. Finally, meekness will be misunderstood. This kind of self-effacing personality that you look like you are projecting when you act meek is almost identical to the kind of self-effacing, timid personality that we see just in people's personalities. And people will confuse the two. There are people that can be bullied or manipulated or run over because they're sweet, they fear conflict, they're self-effacing naturally. They become wallflowers. And if you pursue Christian meekness, you will be, you will be seen as one of them at times by people. You will be dismissed as weak at times. You will be misread. Summary. Meekness is a God-given sense of humility about yourself before God that manifests itself in an ability to be humble before others, to restrain yourself from self-promotion, stop yourself from dominating others, and responsively to endure negative criticism, even slander, with restraint and grace. And it is no easy thing. And now I want to get to why it's no easy thing. Here's the problem. The problem with being meek is it's unnatural and it's dangerous. It's personally unnatural and it's socially dangerous. Personally unnatural. The first problem we have is that we're naturally self-promoting and self-asserting. Our culture trains us to think this way from birth. We're trained. Uh, I, I speak from the Caucasian community. That's the one I know. From I mean, I remember when I'm eight years old and my dad was telling me, okay, son, you're a little bit small, so when you go into the schoolyard and you face bullying, this is what you do. What do you think he said? He said, you kick them right there in the you-know-where so that they're lower, and then you punch them. Now, don't punch them in the head. That'll hurt your hand. You've got to get them in the soft parts of the cheek and the jaw and the nose. The nose is a really good one. That's how I was trained. See, it's not my fault I'm this way. <laughs> right? So then I had a child by adoption, Shayla, and Shayla hit her terrible twos. It was obvious that we had a force of nature, an incredibly strong-willed child on our hands. And despite the exhaustion of it, one mother had Shayla over a sleepover, came to us and said, you do realize that your daughter has more social energy and force than three of my kids. (laughs) Uh, Everyone, including that mom, said, you know, it's great that she's so strong. You know what? When she gets older, she'll be a leader. She won't be bullied. Yeah. That's our culture. Do you hear our culture speaking? Leading is better. Winning is better. Self-assertion is better. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The world thinks in terms of strength and power, of ability, self-assurance, and aggressiveness. That is the world's idea 
The more you assert yourself and express yourself, the more you organize and manifest your powers and ability, the more likely you are to succeed. That is us. Why is that our culture? Because that is us as human beings. We are naturally self-asserting as a culture because we're self-seeking as individuals. It is who we are. It is natural to us. Both secular and religious leaders agree. The secular leaders call it the selfish gene. Hmm. They say we got it from evolution. They say it's just natural to us. And I agree in one sense. It is natural to us. We are naturally selfish. But was that the way it was meant to be? Were we made to be this self-seeking? Is it possible, men and women, that we were originally created differently? Why is it that most of our myths, most of our great stories are about some exalted hero who comes down and humbles themselves to serve others? Why is that such a persistent literary and filmmaking storyline? Lord of the Rings, Aragon, Gandalf, Frodo, them all, The Matrix if you're old enough, Disney myths and stories like Mulan, which apparently is real. She risked all for her family's honor. Think of the Canadian pleasure that Harry and Meghan are are stooping themselves to be ordinary Canadians. Isn't that great? (laughs) We love that. Why? Because something in us longs to transcend the self-seeking, self-asserting, self-promoting side of ourselves. Something in us says there must be a better way. Is it possible we were created differently? I submit to you the gospel says yes. We were actually made to be that way. In the origin of humanity, in the first chapters of Genesis, there was beauty and love and meekness, deferring to God and serving one another, glorifying God instead of ourselves. And we did that until that moment came when we were tempted to know what God knew, to seek our own glory instead of God's. And we took that temptation. We did that. We went from meek to self-seeking, from other-centered to self-centered. And even when we're not self-seeking, even in our giving, we're self-focused. How is this changing me? How is this relating to me? I quote again Martin Lloyd-Jones, it is, is it not one of the great curses in life as a result of the fall that we have this sensitivity about ourselves? We spend the whole of our lives watching ourselves. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's natural to us, but it wasn't that way originally. And so we're stuck with ourselves and we excuse ourselves, but we long to be different from ourselves. It's natural to be self-seeking. It's unnatural to be meek. But we want to. It's also dangerous. Christians come to me and say, I want to be meek, but I can't. I'll be used and abused. I'll be like the giving tree in Shel Silverstein's poem. Remember the story that some of you 
Most of you had it heard to you, read to you as kids. It's that incredibly poignant poem about a tree that keeps allowing a boy to use the tree for his own pleasure. The boy plays and sleeps under the shade, uses the leaves for toys, climbs the branches, then asks for the branches to make a house, then takes the money, the apples for money to buy stuff because he doesn't want to hang out with the tree anymore, and the tree keeps giving and giving and giving. And finally, the, the boy's become a man. He comes to him and says, I want to make a boat. And the tree says, cut me down and use me to make a boat. And the boy, now a man, does. And a long time later, he comes back, and he's an old man. And he comes to visit the tree again. The tree is now just a stump. And so what happens? The tree looks at him and says, I'm sorry, boy, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. Well, my teeth are too weak for apples. My branches are gone. You cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches. My trunk is gone. You cannot climb me. I am too tired to climb. I'm sorry. I wish that I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump. I'm sorry. I don't need very much now. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I am very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. An old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy. Sit down and rest. And the tree was happy. Does this story make you happy? I read this story to my daughter and stopped partway through because this story is about a freaking wallflower being taken advantage of. I don't want my daughter to grow up that way. And then I caught myself and realized how ambivalent this makes me feel. Meekness feels that way, it makes you feel ambivalent. How do you navigate this world of competitive, proud, self-seeking, self-asserting people with meekness? Where do you get the power to do that? So the promise is we'll inherit the earth if we're like that. The problem is we're not like that naturally, and it's dangerous socially to be like that. We will get used and abused. So what do we do? We look firstly to the promise and then secondly to the person. The promise is you will get the whole world. Everything your self-assertion wants you to get will be yours and more if you simply trust in Jesus. Because a world is coming that will make this world look like an old tomato. And that world is the inheritance of all who in poverty of spirit trust in Jesus. And because you have that world, you don't need to get it here. Hope changes and empowers you. Secondly, look to the person. Look to the promise he gives and look to the person himself. You see these words in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm entitled to this. I won't take it but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, already totally humble. He humbled himself more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now here's the question I have for you. Let's ask some questions about Jesus. Was Jesus weak? No. He was God himself with the power to make and remake worlds. Was Jesus lacking ambition? 
Think about that. <laughs> you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water when I give you an opportunity to change the world? <laughs> Did Apple change the world? Sort of. Can Apple remake the world? No. Can Apple take all the guilt of all the sin of all the people in the world and get it cleansed and forgiven? No. Can Apple make a new heaven and new earth? (laughs) No. Jesus can. And Jesus came for that reason. No person who ever existed was more ambitious than Jesus. He didn't just come to change history. He came to change the universe. I have accomplished all that you gave me to do. John chapter 17. Not only ambitious, but he did what he wanted to do. But he was meek. He came and did not assert himself. (laughs) Well, (laughs) except when he called the religious leaders a brood of vipers, and then when he crafted a whip and whipped people and drove people out. Was he meek? Yes. Was he weak? No. Was he a wallflower? No. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of seeing people redeemed from their own sin. The joy of seeing people cleansed from their own guilt. Of people escaping the judgment of God. He went and didn't consider his own equality a thing to be grasped. He became human and then he went to the cross. The one who was all-powerful became the meekest one in all history. Look to him who was meek for you. And then ask his spirit, the spirit of meekness for others, to come into you and empower you. And his spirit can give you this meekness. Ask and you will be filled and you can be meek. Just a short while ago, I hurt somebody deeply by my own inattentiveness. I didn't do it deliberately. They're a good friend of mine. But I should have known something I knew something, and I should have talked to this person about something, and in my busyness, I didn't, and they were deeply hurt. And I had to go and hear the depth of their hurt and hear stinging criticism of my inattentiveness and my lack of care. And all kinds of blame shifting came up, and all kinds of reasons why it wasn't really that bad came up. And finally, I just had to stop and realize how badly I had hurt them and cry. I felt God calling me to confess because it was right and because I was wrong. And then I was with that person, with other people, and again I felt God calling me to humble myself and confess in front of them what I'd done to him and ask for his forgiveness publicly. Now, if you know me, this isn't usual behavior. My idol is respect. My default nature is defensiveness and blame shifting. But because of what Christ had done for me and what the Spirit was doing in me, I was able to overcome my natural self-seeking tendencies and the sin which so easily entangles and ask for forgiveness both privately and publicly. I say this not to my glory, but to my shame. I'm 57 and I'm finally getting there. 
But I say to you, none of you is as self-seeking and aggressive as I am. Sorry, you're looking at the CEO. And if it can happen to me, by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit, it can happen to you. Look to the promise. Look to the person. Be filled with His Spirit. And you can be blessed. And the whole earth can be yours. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. And I ask now that you, by that goodness, would help us to overcome our natural selfishness and recover the supernatural, with your Spirit's help, the meekness that you supernaturally give, that you originally gave to Adam and Eve, and that you give back to your people through your Spirit. I pray for those who don't yet know you, that they might be astonished at the strength of meekness, at the call to meekness, and that the meekness of a God they may have considered foreboding or distant, but who loved them enough to come near and who served them enough to die for them. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have time for questions. I have some, I'm sure, on this phone, but I always give priority of place to anyone who has the guts to put their hand up. So if you have a hand raised, you get to jump the queue and be first in line. Who's first? Yes, right over here. Yes. 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 Yeah. 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 Jesus sounds like he's giving you a clever way to look sanctified and actually get glory. Yes. 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 Yeah. So you just asked four hours worth of questions. I, I applaud you. I'm going to repeat them. Firstly, isn't the story of the banquet kind of a clever way for you to get glory from others as you get moved up? And that leads into a larger question. Jesus still, in this one, offers a reward. So how is this, you know, really good ethically? Okay. So uh, I may get to the, the parable. I want to get to that first one because that one is the most powerful one and it's the one we, we most mischaracterize. And I have to think about how to say it. Jesus does not say that desires are wrong. It's where you locate your desires and what they are. He wants you to be ambitious. He wants you to be ambitious for the glory of God, and he wants you to be ambitious for the kingdom that he will bring in. He's not saying desire is wrong. He's saying where you locate them. As Lyndon said last week, if you desire your glory to be here on this earth, you have misplaced, you have mislocated your desire for glory. It should be later. If you desire all the pleasures that you can to get in this life, you've mislocated those desires. They should be in the world to come. This world is a world of brokenness and suffering. It is given to you. So, part of what we feel when we have ambition is, I want some pleasure. I want some glory. Those things aren't inherently all wrong. They are mislocated and misdirected. If you locate them and direct them properly, 
Go for it. Be as ambitious as you can for the glory of God and for the kingdom to come. So it's not the problem of desire which fuels ambition. It's the problem of locating them in the proper place. So Jesus doesn't say cease and suppress all desires. That's Buddhism. Locate your desires properly. Get in touch with your... Matter of fact, intensify your desires. When you get your desires actually located and actually you feel them, you want immortality. You want perfect pleasure. You want freedom from any kind of wrong. And then when you get in touch with that level of desire, you are finally becoming truly human. And then you find yourself in C.S. Lewis's place. If I find in myself desires which no, nothing in this world can fulfill, I find perhaps I'm made for another world. So intensify those desires. Great question. Now, the parable of the wedding banquet. The point of the wedding banquet is that you allow somebody else to glorify you. The head host of the table is Jesus Christ himself. The banquet is the wedding banquet, maybe, eschatologically. But the point of this is that this isn't meant as a clever way to get yourself seen as both sanctimonious. (laughs) I'm pious. Look, I went to the lowest and look, see how great I am? That's not the point. The point is you allow somebody else to determine where you're going to go. You don't seek it for yourself. That's the one point of the parable. All right. Anybody else? Want to jump the queue? Okay. Uh, Not bad. Twelve. Someone? Someone else? Ah, up here. Yes. Ah, how are you? Good. You know, we could just meet for lunch because you have so many good questions. Is it a quick one? The trolley problem? No. How can you be meek or loving when everything you do is the wrong choice? Wow. Let me think about that. That that question is, I need to think about that. It's going to take me too long to think of a, a solid answer to a solid question. So let me think about that and afterwards come up and I'll see if I've got a better answer. Let me, the hard drive work on that. Okay. There are uh, 14 questions, so I'm going to get to maybe two. Uh, oh, good. Sorry. There are 19 questions and some of them are last week's. There we go. It seems difficult to justify that most promotions are for the glory of God. How do we know that this is the case, and how do we think about connecting the benefits of a promotion to God's glory rather than our own? Great question. Here's how you do it. Maybe. I had this question on Wednesday night, so I'm ready for this one. (laughs) Plan with God, if you're a Christian, as to what you're going to do with any promotion. Plan a godly result. I want if I get this promotion to take this portion of the extra money that I'm going to get and I want to use it for this good, this flourishing of the city, either to the church or to the city in whatever way. I'm going to take a a big portion of of the extra money and I'm going to do that. Secondly, I'm going to take the extra cultural capital that I have and I'm going to try and help the people under me experience a different kind of leadership, a leadership that's more consultative, that's more caring, that's more helping them flourish. 
to the extent that I can, and the younger you are, the less you can do it. The, the lower you are on the, on the food chain, as it were, the less you can do it. But to the people under me and around me, I'm going to change the dynamics of the narrative of our group. And so the key is proactive thinking about how you're going to handle any kind of promotion so that it actually does glorify God. Thirdly, when I get it, I'm going to give glory to God that this is a gracious gift. So those are three things that you should plan to do. Plan what, you, plan what you can do with the money, plan what you're going to do with the cultural capital, and plan on how you're going to publicly respond to. You know, it took them a long time to figure out how great I am. <laughs> no, that's not the, what you should say. Okay, I've got time for none more. Sorry. Okay. Uh, how do you encourage brothers and sisters in Christ who are having their meekness taken advantage of to the point of abuse? Tell them about the law of love. Love doesn't take abuse because abuse hurts both the one being abused and it corrupts the one who's abusing. The law of love says you always graciously, firmly contradict abuse. You stop abuse. And so uh, what most people do is they mix up meekness with wallflowerness. They aren't the same at all. To be meek is to follow the law of love. What, but to be meek is to follow the law of love to serve others first and not yourself. All right, we are going to go to a place of great meekness. The greatest moment of meekness is found in human history in the death of Jesus Christ. God the Son becoming the scapegoat for your and my sin. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread at a meal with his followers and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. A few minutes later, He picked up a cup of wine and holding it up, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. And Jesus wanted us to repeat the eating of bread and the drinking of the cup for the purposes of reminding ourselves how meek was God in giving of his life for the joy set before him of redeeming his people and seeing them cleansed of their sin. There is no act more meek than the act of the Son climbing onto the cross, as it were, and allowing His body to be broken and His blood to be poured out. If you are here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not Grace Toronto's table, but it's the table for all baptized believers who put their trust in Jesus. If you haven't yet done that, I ask you just to look at the prayers in the bulletin and locate where you are in your spiritual journey. But if you have, as the bread, which is gluten-free, is passed by, and the cup, which is both wine and grape juice, the wine is darker, is passed, take and receive and respond to the one who is meek and ask him to renew you in being one who is meek. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Now as the table is passed and given and we eat of it, May we receive a spirit of meekness and be renewed in the grace that surrounds us. In Christ's name, amen. The table is open. Enjoy.